Listener Production. Hey, producer Carly here. Just a quick one before we dig into today's incredible interview with Hugh Van Kylenberg. Straight up at the beginning, there is a little bit of talk around Hugh's sister and her eating disorder. So if you find this a sensitive topic for yourself, maybe just skip through the first five minutes or so of the episode. And as always, there are resources in the show notes if this brings up anything for you. Let's go. to Darling Shine, a podcast by myself, Elodie Pullen, and me, Chloe Fisher, a place where we ground womanhood's unspoken experiences from grief to fertility and everything in between. Join us while we transform our pain into power, encompassing all emotions, ugly and beautiful. Darling Shine is your chosen family and your survival kit for the unexpected shit life throws at you. I was sitting on my couch in Ibiza with Paul and it was like one weekend and we're like, what are we going to watch? You know, you're constantly flicking through Netflix and Amazon Prime and all. And we came across your, um, is it, would you call it a documentary or sort of? Uh, a show, it? I a think, show. maybe. Yeah. I was like, let's whack this on and see, like, how can we be happier? It was one of the best things I've watched in a really long time. And both of us were sitting there like laughing our heads off because um, my husband knows Dusty not really well, but when you were telling the yep. story about Dusty Martin and like how he took all the books, we were just pissing ourselves. He's like, that <laughs> is Dusty. He would yeah. do that. That's yeah, hilarious. Yeah. Then when I started researching you and I immediately thought of our podcast because I thought we need to get you on. This like this, this is amazing. For those who don't know who Hugh is, he owns a brand, would you call it a brand called The Resilient Project? And he goes yes. around to schools and workplaces and sports teams and he talks about mental health. He also has written two books. I've read The Resilient, is it called The Resilient Project as well? Uh, Resilience Resilient Project, yep. Yep, Resilience I've read Project, that yep. one. As, I've read that, loved yep. it. And he also has another book. Elodie's written a book too. So we're in the room with two, well, I'm in the room with two you're authors. A, you're a comedian <laughs> and a keynote speaker as well. And I actually came across your podcast ages ago when you interviewed Laura Henshaw. And I went on, I saw her post about it and then I went on. It was such a cool chat. Oh, thank you. That's very nice. That's lovely. I'm stoked that we've got you on. I, like, because Chloe's been carrying on about you for a while. <laughs> I didn't put two and two together. <laughs> Until the today. Same person. <laughs> But Hugh, welcome to Darling Shine. Can I just ask quickly, to pronounce your surname, is it Seilenberg or Kylenberg? It's uh, Kylenberg, the most commonly asked question I get. Kylenberg. We know you've got a big backstory as to how you got into all of this. We want to hear about your upbringing, your family, your sister, your trip to India. Shoot. Okay, I'll just, I'll speak for the next hour. (laughs) (laughs) You guys can leave if you want. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess... On this podcast, the people listen to it, a lot of people are, are interested in like personal growth and resilience and mental health. I guess the first thing to say up front is that I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a medical practitioner. I just, I've always been really fascinated in the question, what is it that makes us happy? And the older I get, the more interested I am. It's like, I don't know what you guys think, but I feel like as a kid, I always thought the older you get, the easier life would get and sort of the happier you would become. I've kind of found it to be the opposite. I think the older I get, sort of the harder it, it gets in a way. And so, for, yeah, so so for a very long time, I've, I've been, well, I guess it all started for me when I was, oh gosh. So my sister was diagnosed with a mental illness um, when she was 14 and I was 17. It was anorexia nervosa, uh, an eating disorder. And it, and it really, I mean, for anyone out there who knows someone with an eating disorder, it's a really confronting and heartbreaking condition for the person, but also the people who love them because you can see physically the toll that it's having on them. And for someone you love, seeing them being that unwell, for me, it, it conjures up thoughts of someone in a horror movie like that. It was that kind of confronting. But anyway, so when my sister was 14, she was diagnosed when she was 17 years old, she was admitted to hospital. And for the first time, she dropped below crisis weight, uh, which I've learned recently you're not meant to actually say what the weight was. I, I did say it in my um, special on Amazon and I got a lot of people contact me saying that's so irresponsible, you're not meant to say that. Um, really? And so I didn't know that. Why so. is that? Because it would be triggering. Well, I think it's like, right. I think it can almost, for some people who, who are right in it, can be quite a competitive. They can be like, okay, well, if I can get below that, that can. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, that yeah, person got to that understood. weight, so I can I'm going to do that yeah. as well. So I think I think that's why. But it was um, I didn't realize that when we when we released the show. But anyway, she got blood crisis weight, and I remember coming home from hospital that night. And so this is going back a long way. I'm like a very 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 old man. <laughs> what was it? 1990? No, year 2000. Right? I was year 2000. I was 20 years old, and my sister's in the hospital for the first time, and I was sitting around the dinner table with my family minus my sister and my little brother Josh was there who I do the podcast with now. And my dad got up to wash the dishes and I asked him a question. He didn't answer and I thought that's really weird to so ask again. He didn't answer and I turned around to see why he didn't answer. And I'll never ever forget the silhouette of my dad hunched over the kitchen sink crying. And I had never seen, sorry, I'm sorry, I had. I'd seen him cry once before that when our dog died when, we, when I was very young. It was the second time I've ever seen my dad cry. And I think a lot of people have very strong memories of seeing their parents cry because when you do, I think for a lot of people it's quite rare, especially our dads. But when you do, it's like this, I don't know, it's like this really um, unsettling feeling of like the person who's keeping me safe doesn't look to be safe themselves or doesn't look like they're coping or doesn't look like they feel safe from the world themselves at the moment. That's a very... That's a very kind of scary feeling, I think. Oh, I don't know it's if you so guys true. remember that. I don't no, know if you guys it's really, they're like your heroes. And then when they cry, you're like, oh my God, the world's fucking ending. Yes. Yeah, they yeah. can't cope. How am I going to yeah. cope? Yeah. yeah like, yes. Yeah, so and, and like what, it must be so serious what is happening. Like it's like a whole other level. Like never really thought of it like scary that before. Yeah. How old were you at this point? So I was 20 then and my sister was okay. 17. And it, it was very life-changing for a couple of reasons. The first one was I remember thinking, I wish I knew what I could do to make mum and dad happy again because we were such a happy family growing up, but all of a sudden we just weren't. I knew I couldn't help fix my sister, but that was well beyond my, me at age 20 with no expertise whatsoever, but I did think I wanted mum and dad to smile again. I want to see my little brother happy again. And I just became fascinated with the question of what is it that makes people happy? And the other thing that happened that moment was when I saw dad cry, I, I think I'd been pretending I was totally fine with it the whole time. I was if anything, I was, if, I, if I was showing any emotion, it was, I'm so fucking sick of this. Like, just start eating food. This is just killing all of us. Like, this mm. is just too much for all of us. So but when I saw Dad in tears, I remember thinking, it's, it's okay to show everyone that you're struggling. And that was like a, a pretty big realization. And we talk about it. And like, we're, we're touring the country now with our live show. And we've got so many shows next year. And a big part of that live show or that live podcast that we're doing is talking about the fact that the, the vulnerability is such a superpower. Like it's it's such a superpower mm-hmm. to put your hand up and go, I'm not doing okay. Uh, because when you do that, I think two things happen to you. The first one is you become really curious as in, okay, well, well in fact, it's the other way. So the first thing that happens is it's just humility. You have a feeling of humility as in like, I don't have the answers. I don't have it all sorted. I thought I did, but I don't. And then the next thing that happens is you're very curious. Like you go, well, what do I do? What's out there for me? What can I do to get better? And I guess that's what happened to me when I was 20 years old, I was sort of, I just thought, well, what, what, like, what is it that makes people happy? And that's what started me on the journey, I guess. And then I didn't, you know, start researching it that very second because that was back in 2000. And if I wanted to, I would have had to look up in Carter 96 or something. There was no, <laughs> there was no, <laughs> there was no internet to look those things up. Mm. Did you find that it kind of put a bit of a stop still on your family when this was all going down? Because you know, when you've got a family member that's so sick, did you feel super helpless? Like, how did, like, did everyone play their part in trying to get her better or did you just not really understand the extremity of the problem at the time? We weren't really talking about mental health in the 90s and the early yeah. 2000s, especially not in school, so I didn't really know. Mm-hmm. I kind of ignored it. Was it was, like, frowned upon a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. It was, I mean, for me, it was even, I didn't even know what it was. Like, I was just like, mm. what do you mean she has to eat food and then she'll get better? This can't be that bad. If eating food's the answer, this can't be that serious. Because I know people with cancer who, they don't really know how to help them. If my sister eats food, I didn't really know what depression was back then. I didn't know what anxiety disorder was. So I guess I didn't really, but I disappeared, to be honest. I spent a lot of time at my then girlfriend's house, which I subsequently felt very bad about for a very long time, that I just sort of ran away. I really related to something that you said in one of your talks that we listened to this morning, how when something seems too hard or too unbearable, you just kind of pretend it's not there. You just avoid, which is completely what I do. So I guess that's, that was you going through that avoidant phase. Yeah, it totally was. It totally was. I, by the way, I love the, 
Just it's our podcast is called The Imperfects, and I lo- I love any. <laughs> Sorry, gift. I'm just like watching the dog do yes. like dog they dance see around. It. I know, but I was like, don't sit on the cords. Oh, I just see turn just then for a second, there's a dog here just appear right in front of both of you. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry, so, that was that was very totally fine. Um, no, it's totally fine. I love it. I love it. Um, uh, <laughs> so. I think a lot of boys, and and I know that you probably have predominantly female listeners, but I'm sure they might be able to see this in their boyfriends or their brothers or their dads. But I think from a young age, we are told, stop crying, don't be a girl, be a man, mm-hmm. toughen up, because that's the way our dad's dads were brought up. So they just do what their dad's dads did. That was a long time ago. And so we grow up thinking that emotions aren't a good, because if you want to be a man, you don't want to be a girl, then I don't have emotions. And so when you do feel like you're having emotions, you are very keen to push them aside because in, you've had this messaging from whoever your whole life that if you do that, that's like being a girl, that's not being a man, that's like being a boy. So I think for a lot of us, especially men, when something really tough happens, we just go, no, that's, I'll just, I'll push on and I'll, I'll stiff up a lip, I'll be fine. But now with all the research around this stuff, that is the most unhealthy way to work through whatever it is you are dealing with. Um, we spoke to a lady on our podcast the other day called Gina Chick, who was the winner of Alone. I'm not sure if you guys watched that series Alone, where there was this group of people who they were dumped in the Tasmanian bush in the middle of winter. They could only take, I think it was five items with them. And it was said to see who could live or survive the longest. The winner was this lady called Gina Chick. And she did it so easily. Like she was this lady who was just like bare feet, just singing and dancing about how beautiful nature is. And she's yeah, up against good. this guy. Yeah, she's up against this guy who's like this hardened veteran of like army veteran who was like, like just trying to dominate nature and just like manly, masculine, like strong guy versus this like beautiful 50-year-old lady oh. who was like, I just love nature. And she killed him. She destroyed him. We asked her about one, why she got through and she talked about all the heartache she'd been through in her life and she talked about how, you know, her daughter died when her daughter was three years old. And we we're like, oh my God, that's, and there was all this other stuff she'd been through, but she said, she goes, I'd been through that and I let it fully hit me. She goes, there were days I was lying on the floor screaming, like screaming to get her back and I would cry for three or four days in a row and I'd just yell and scream. And then other days I would just like sob quietly. Other days I would just dance because I felt like dancing. And she goes, I fully embraced all the pain. I welcomed it all. And that's what's made me really tough. And that's kind of the opposite of what we do as men. We go, I'm going to be tough by ignoring every negative emotion that I have. Yeah. Avoid, avoid, out of sight, out of mind. Talk to us about that pivotal moment when you decided real men cry and you turned that corner and you decided to get vulnerable. I think a lot of people probably assumed that it was around that time they went, right, I'm going to be someone who embraces vulnerability. It wasn't for much longer. Like I, I, so much happened to me in the years since my sister recovered. She recovered probably in her mid-20s. In my late 20s, I was um, I quit teaching because I wanted to start the Resilience Project. But I stupidly just quit and had nothing to go to. I was like, right, I'm going to start doing talks for kids on mental health and resilience. But had no schools interested at that point. I didn't even like put my toe in the water. I just went, yep, this is a new business I'm starting and I had no one really that interested for the first two or three years. I had so many no's, so many schools saying no. And so because I wasn't really working, I was doing two days of emergency teaching a week to pay the bills. And you guys might remember what it was like, how many emergency teacher coming to your school? You're just like, let's ruin this person. <laughs> that, was my, that was my life. Loved a substitute teacher. <laughs> yeah. The bears would be like, actually, we're having a movie day today. They're wheeling the TV, <laughs> a big TV on the wheels. Yeah, and if they don't do that, you just destroy them. Like, so yeah. that was my life, two days a week getting destroyed by kids who uh, didn't want me there. And then the other day, I was just getting told no by everyone. So I had no money. I was single at the time and all my friends were getting married. They were having kids and I was like, I have no money, I have no partner, like, I, I just had nothing. And I remember, but I, I was pretending to everyone, but I was totally fine. I was like, yeah, business is great and yeah, I love being single. And, and like I'd have, have my mates who had kids and were married and I'd just talk up how great it was being single. But I was just watching, looking at them going, God, I just, I don't, I don't want to be single. I just want that. Like I just would like to have a partner. I'd like to like have kids. So I just pretended I was fine for many years. So it didn't quite hit me for quite a long time. And then the resilience project started to pick up quite rapidly and all of a sudden it, it was it was wild. Like it went from being one or two talks a week to about 15 talks a week in 15 Whoa. different venues around the country. 
Um, and then it went from like schools to elite sport and all of a sudden I was at every National Rugby League club in the competition speaking to their partners, to the players, to the staff, to the underage kids, to at all, at all every single club and then it was Australian sporting teams and all the while I was just saying yes to everything. So I'd said, I was just sitting around doing nothing for a couple of years. So I was like, I can never say no. So I said yes to everything. And I was getting more and more burnt out. I met my incredible partner, Penny. We had... Um, our first child in 2016. We had another. We had a baby at the start of 2020, and I was like, "I'm exhausted. I can't do anymore. I got to stop. I just can't do this." And I said that to work. I said, "I'm burnt out." They went, "Yep, no worries." And then the pandemic happened, and I thought, "This is a terrible time to not do talks on mental health. This is a very selfish time to stop." So we even went wow. even harder, and because I was doing it in this room right now, where I'm speaking to, you, and it was just around the corner from home, I could. I wasn't restricted by geography anymore. I could do as many talks as the, like I could do six or seven talks a day to workplaces, schools, sporting clubs. And I did that for six or seven months. My daughter, Elsie, who is now three and a half, wasn't sleeping. She was a terrible sleeper, still is a terrible sleeper. I remember one night she was sick and she, that's why she wasn't sleeping. And I got really angry at her. She was eight months old and I yelled at her for being sick. And I was like, oh my God. I've never been angry at anyone in my entire life. And all of a sudden, I'm angry at the person I love most in the world. What? This is weird. And she can't help it and she's three. Yeah, like. exactly. Yeah. Well, she was eight months back then. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, and then that morning, the next morning, I did an interview for, uh, what was it? Dave Hughes radio show in Sydney. I don't know what it is, but him and um, Ed Coverley, Hedder and Nolan, Dave Hughes finished the interview by saying, he said, um, anyway, I know you're in Melbourne right now, lockdown, so I better check. Um, are you Okay. And up to that point, I'd been telling everyone I was fine because I'm the resilience guy, so I have to be fine. And it caught me so off guard, but I remember going, I'm totally and utterly broken. And I nearly started crying. And I was like, whoa, what have I just said? Like, that is not good for my brand. And they were a bit caught off guard. They're like, okay, good one, mate. Hope you're okay. Uh, next up, we go to the choppers and go to the traffic. Um, Classic. And I went inside to my wife and said, um, so I've just admitted to how many people listen to Hughesy in the morning that I'm not okay. And she goes, what do you mean you're okay? And that was the moment that I just said, I'm really struggling. I have been for a while now. And it was that was what I said before. Like the second I said it, that I'm not coping, I was very teary. And I was like, I was so quickly filled by this feeling of humility of like, just because I'm the resilience person doesn't mean that I'm okay all the time. That's a ridiculous mm-hmm. like assumption to make. And I need to get some help here. I want to, I'm going to work my way through this. And that was probably the moment that I really embraced vulnerability. I started telling everyone, we did an episode on the podcast where I just, just said to everyone, uh, I'm not okay at the moment and I'm going to be, but right now I'm not. And here's why I'm not okay. Here's what I'm going to do. I just went on the biggest learning journey of my life. That's kind of what the second book is. The second book I wrote is called Let Go. And every chapter is a different session from my psychologist basically because Every session I had with my psych, she was like, I just, I just kept, after every session, I, she was like, you got to let go of that. And it was something else I had to let go of, whether it was ego, whether it was expectations, whether it was my addiction to social media. You know, all these things that I was like, the shame that I had around the way I was when my sister was sick, all this stuff. And that's what sort of formed my second book. And that's kind of when I went, my gosh, vulnerability is like this superpower. And I locked this new part of my life where I was like, it changed everything. It was absolutely life-changing. It's an amazing thing to be able to be vulnerable, especially on the platforms that we have because, you know, I think as well, you give off so much energy and that takes a lot to give, to give, give, give all the time. And we only just had something really similar. Well, I mean, I did personally on our podcast maybe about a month or two ago, I actually came out and I was like, I'm so not okay. We've been, my husband and I have been trying to conceive for nearly four years. We've had like yep. four miscarriages, like, it just got oh. like hectic. And a lot of our listeners come over to want to know my our journey. And that's what like, not that they're not here for that, but it's actually took me learning to be like, guys, I'm not okay. I need to take some time off, right? My own mental health, work on me. And also like try and really understand that it's not always about that one thing. Like, you know, you 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 are the resilience guy, but you're also so much more than that. And I think that that's what, like, I got on a call with, like, Elodie and our producer and, and the team at Listener, and they're like, hey, you got to understand that, like, people are going to come and listen to this podcast regardless, whether you talk about your fertility or, you, or you're not. And I think it, it was the scariest thing ever to be so vulnerable on such 
a, a platform that goes out to so many people. And I feel like I've grown so much of as a human since doing that. And I don't know, I just feel like, do you, do you feel like ever since you've kind of done that, people have come out of the woodworks and they've actually kind of expressed to you as well, like they feel comfortable with talking to you that they're not okay and you don't have to be happy all the time. Yeah, yeah, yes, definitely. Before I move on to that, like, gosh, what a tough thing for you to go through. I'm so sorry that, to, you know, that's, I've, I've got quite a few friends who have been in a similar journey and it's like, it's not spoken about a lot, but it's a, it's a, a pretty brutal journey. Yeah. Well, pretty brutal is an understatement, but it's a brutal journey to go on and, and I'm sorry that, that that's what you're going through. But I have to say, like, you sharing that, the amount of people that would have felt strength from that and would have felt just hearing their story and you would have made them feel so much less alone. We, we, we haven't been through that. We've been through a, a different journey, my wife and I, and every time we hear someone talk about the stuff we're going through, it just makes you feel a lot less alone. So I think it's so so incredible that you instinctively went with that. I think it's just amazing. And I think the more people are like you in that situation, I, I think one of the biggest issues we have now with social media is we feel, ironically, we feel a lot more alone than we ever have before. I mean, this generation now that's come through, the, the generation that's come through growing up on devices, ironically, is the loneliest um, generation we've ever seen, in, according to all the data, the loneliest generation there is. And so I think people like you coming out and saying what you've said will help to connect this community that desperately needs to feel connected. So I think it's so, so great that you did that. I really do. Thank you. Um, but I also wanted to ask you, you said in, I think, in, in your show that Australia is like the second largest country in the world that suffer from depression and anxiety. And like, why the hell is that? We live in such a beautiful place. We we are very lucky people to be living in this country. Why do you think that we are so high up that ladder in depression and anxiety? Yeah, I remember the the, the stat. I read it in, I think it was Johan Hari's book, that Australians are the second, have the second highest rate of anxiety anywhere in the world per capita. And I, it, it's hard to compare it to other countries, but the, I, I think one of the big issues we have in Australia is so many of us, live off this model of happiness called the if-and-then model of happiness, which is like, if I buy this car, then I feel happy. Or if I get this promotion, then I feel happy. Or if I get this job, then I feel happy. There's nothing wrong with wanting those things. They're all perfectly normal things to aspire towards. But the problem is we attach happiness to it. So we say, if it happens, and then so it, so it happens, we get that car. And then we're and like... And then you're we, looking for the next thing. Yeah, we always. enjoy it for a few weeks. And then we're like, we see a better dry, car driving past in a few months' time and go, oh, I need to get that car, then I feel happy. Or... We're all so busy looking for external validation or external things to make us feel good. You know, when I lived in, I lived in this village in India for um, three and a half months, it was this very remote community. There was no running water, no electricity, no beds, everyone sleeping on the floor. And no one was living their life like wanting more. Everyone, ironically, they had very little to call their own, but they were so grateful for the stuff that they had. And I, I've talked about it in the book and also in the Amazon um, special, but these kids were so good at paying attention to what they had. Um, and one kid in particular, who I haven't actually spoken about in a while, but in fact, I haven't done it since we did that Amazon special, which was like, honestly, a couple of years ago. But this one kid called Stunzen, who just, he was like, this is a kid who had cut the end of his shoes off because they were too small. He couldn't afford new shoes. So he cut the end of his shoes off. His toes were sticking outside the end, but he'd, if he was near me, he'd tie up his shoelaces, he'd just point to them and he'd try and say the word this, but the TH is very difficult to pronounce as when English is not your first language. So he just point to his shoes and go, sad this, 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 this. What he was saying was, oh, your shoes are my feet. How lucky am I? Wow. A lot of the kids here don't have shoes, but I do. He, just, he was just so good at paying attention to what he had. And I don't think we're great at that in Australia. No, I don't more think money, we're more at, problems here. Yeah, well, I don't think we're paying attention to what we, are, what we have. And so I think that makes us really anxious. <laughs> I loved that part in the show when you spoke about him and, and your experience in India. I don't know if, we, if you can tell a little bit more about it and why you went there really. Yeah. I really want everyone to hear about it because it was just, it brought so much happiness to like, Paul and I were like, oh my God, you're so right. Yeah. So it was, what was the year? It was 2008. So I was 27 turning 28. And my girlfriend at the time, 
a wonderful, wonderful person who, she was a teacher as well. And she said, we should go and teach. No, no, she said, we should do some traveling. And I was so, such a sheltered. I was like, oh, I'm so happy in Melbourne. Like, I like going to the footy in the summer and the cricket. I'm oh, sorry, I go to the footy in the, footy in the winter, summer and the cricket. I don't really know. I don't need to, we're happy here. And she's like, well, I'm going. And I didn't want her to leave without me. So I went, okay, I'm coming. We went to India. I can't remember why we chose India. I remember I was pretty excited about it because cricket was over there and I love my cricket. <laughs> but when I got there, I got such a shock. It was nothing, like it was, and I have to say, I, I hated the first two months. It was the biggest culture shock I've ever experienced in my life. The poverty, the noise, the pollution, the smell, the, like, the people just like 1.5 billion people in a country the same size as Australia. It was just, you just it was just, I found it really quite, it was too much. After a couple of months, I started to relax and enjoy it a bit more. And she said, we should go and do some teaching. And I said, yeah, well, we're out of money. So let's do some, let's get a job as teachers. And she said, no, no, we should volunteer somewhere. They really need volunteer teachers here. And luckily she was the boss. So we ended up, <laughs> luckily we ended up um, doing volunteering. And we, ended, we chose this village, I can't remember how, we chose a village called Tixay. So if people want to Google that, it's spelt many different ways on the signs in the actual village. But the <laughs> most common way I could see was T-H-I-C-K-S-E-E-Y, Tixay, Tixay. And you fly to a place called Leh, which is right up in the northern tip of India near Pakistan. And then I think it was like a two-hour bus out to this remote village. Yeah, no running water knowledge. And I remember we were going to be there for two weeks. And when I realized on the first day that there was no running water, no electricity, all that kind of stuff. I remember saying to the principal, oh, yeah, so not two weeks, two nights, two nights. Because I was like, there is no way I'm sleeping on a floor for two weeks. And it's like, it's not like a, it, was, it wasn't like carpet. It was like a dirt floor. Like we're in mud huts in the middle of the desert. So he looked pretty disappointed, but not overly surprised. She was fine. She was like, no, it's going to be amazing. Um, and the next day was our first day teaching in the school. And after about 20 minutes with the grade threes, who I had first, and nine-year-olds, I just remember thinking, I remember looking at these kids saying to myself, never in my life have I ever seen joy like this before. Like I just, they were covered in like dirt and dust. Obviously, they, I think they only had, a lot of them only had one set of clothes was their school uniform. Some of them don't have shoes where they're sitting cross-legged on the dirt floor. But I just remember thinking I've never seen joy like this before and I thought there's no I can't leave here like I, I cannot leave here I need to know what is it these people do every day that makes them so fucking happy I remember one of the first nights I remember a family said come and drink tea everyone wanted you to come and drink tea in their mud hut after school it was always a different family it was like come and drink tea with us and his family said come and drink tea with us it was 3.30 in the afternoon and it wasn't just the mum and the kids it was like the mum dad kids extended family neighbours everyone's sitting in a circle like no one's off at work they're all sitting there they're all helping make this tea and everyone's just chatting about their day, the biggest smiles on their faces, laughing. And I just remember thinking to myself, I reckon these people are onto something. I have no idea what they're doing, but I reckon they're onto something. And then the more I thought about it, I thought about us back home and I thought, well, maybe it's more we're doing something a bit wrong back home. I didn't know what back then. I had no idea what it was. But now when you look at the stats, you would have to say we are doing a little bit wrong. That's what sort of inspired me to stay and I decided we, we were there for... In the end, I think we're there for about three and a half months. And once a month, we would go in, we would catch a um, bus into the closest city and we would like stay in a hotel and have a warm shower. And there was a place that did really shitty pizza and pasta, but we were like, this is the greatest restaurant we've ever been to in our entire lives. <laughs> uh, but then we'd go back and we would teach um, in, these, in this community. And it was, it was by far the most life-changing thing I've ever done because what I saw was, and this is a lot of people have probably heard this, but what these people did every single day was they practiced gratitude, which is the ability to pay attention to what you've got, not worry about what you don't have. They practiced empathy, which is where you, empathy is when you feel what someone else feels. Like you actually can really feel what that person's feeling. And the reason that's so powerful is that when you can feel what someone else feels, you are more likely to act in a kind way. And the last thing I practiced every single day, like religiously, was mindfulness. So the principle we lived in, we would wake up at four o'clock every morning and meditate till five. And then we'd get to school, they'd do a half an hour meditation at the school and we'd get home and meditate for an hour again. Um, it was the most enlightened, most relaxed, like <laughs> old man I've ever met in my entire life. But um, 
Yeah, they they delib- they went they had these practices that were just part of their daily routine that we don't prioritize. And I strongly believe that is why they were just such happy people. It sounds like connection and like community and that village over there is super important as well. And like you look at us and a lot of us, yeah, we do have connection, but I think a lot of us aren't as present. We're always on technology and maybe not having that family time and that like those special moments of a night time or every day like these guys have in India. Yeah, that's a really great point. If you walk past someone in the street in this village, you, you stop and you talk to them for like anything less than five minutes is considered really rude. Whoa. So you don't get much done. You don't get to... We're too busy here for that. You don't, there's no, like, there's not much to do in a way. Like, it's just like walk around and just chat, like be with people, like be with the people of your village. Like in their their mind, they're like, what else is there that matters really? Like, then we've got each other. That's it. That's amazing. So I didn't really speak Ladakhi. They didn't speak English. So, but I still had to stop. And they would often just hold your hand, like men as well. They just hold your hand. stop. Like... These men would reach Strangers. out and hold your hand and they would say, uh, the way you say hello in Tixi, in um, Ladakh is you say Jule, but where you sort of bow and, and you put, <laughs> it's like you're sort of bowing to someone, but you do it with one hand, like you go Jule, but you say it quite a few times. You go Jule, 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 Jule. Oh. So we'd say Jule to each other about five times and then we'd just sort of stand there and I'd just be <laughs> smiling awkwardly and they'd be holding my hand. <laughs> I just can't stop laughing because I'm imagining if I lived in India, like Chloe already thinks I can't get anything done. So imagine if I lived in India, there'd be fuck all getting done. I'd be just chatting to people in the street. You love that. You'd just be like, this is what my day consists of. Like I'm making time for... Yeah, I'd be like, I have a meeting in the street. I'm going to run into a few people. (laughs) Yeah, who knows when I'll get there um, because there will be a lot of people I walk past. any meeting on time. (laughs) So, yeah, you're right, though. The connection, they are so connected and so part of each other's lives and the doors are just open. Like everyone just walks into each other's mud huts and they just hang out there for ages and it's like, yeah, it's just amazing. It really is. So after after that? I think, so when I got back from India, I, I kind of, I went back into teaching and I taught at a school where the kids were the most privileged kids. I don't know why I went to this school. It was so stupid, yeah. but it was the most privileged kids probably in Australia. There was a school in Turak in Melbourne and... What I saw there was, I mean, probably the most ungrateful community I'd ever been a part of. And it was so confronting. These kids had everything and nothing it was ever going to be enough for them. And it was just so confronting that I just, I survived, I don't know, probably, I think it was all of two months there. And I ended up teaching in a program for kids who were a bit the opposite, who, who didn't have much and were um, disengaged um, adolescents, basically, who were really up against it. And when I was teaching them, I started to think about, they had some pretty full-on struggles, these these adolescents. And I was, we had a few issues, some pretty big issues we're dealing with. I just thought about what I'd seen, gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness. And I started just teaching these every single morning. At the end of every single day, they had to write down on this, like in their workbook, three things that went well for them during the day because that's how you practice gratitude. And I'd get them to re- write that down Everyone to do a random act of kindness every single day, but not tell anyone, not report back to it, not do it to get credit for it, just do something nice for someone else. And we'd do meditation every day. And I watched the impact it had on these disengaged adolescents. And it was wild how much it changed them. And I remember thinking, well, that that's I need to, I don't want to be limited to teaching 25 kids a year this stuff. I want everyone to know this, everyone should know this. And that's when yeah, I started the resilience project. And a year later it was it was teaching that in classrooms that we probably I probably spoke to 500 kids and this year I think we've got a a year-long curriculum and presentations going to half a million kids now around Australia so I think we're in about 10% of schools around Australia now it's it's um yeah it's amazing it's really amazing so amazing and it's so important I I I take my hat off to you because I just think so much more needs to be done in this mental health space especially in this day and age I really liked how you frame that because I know that there's a lot of gratitude books out there and it's like, write, write three things I'm grateful for each day. But you say three things that went well for me this day. Why have you reframed that? Because I think, what are you grateful for? It's too repeat. I, I think people very naturally gravitate towards big kind of like tangible things. I'll go, um, my house, my family, my car, my job. And then, which is fine, but for most people, once you start repeating yourself on night, 
for you. Like I said, friends, now that I'll say it again, I think when it gets repetitive, it gets boring. So you kind of stop. We wanted to create this journal that, that we did it with Dr. M. Musgrove, the psychologist on our podcast. She did it with me. And we wanted it to be something that people never got bored of. So there's heaps of different questions. But when it is, instead of what are you grateful for, it's what went well, what are three things that went well for you today and why? And so we, we encourage it to be small things. So it's like, I had a really nice coffee this morning. I got a really nice text message from my partner. I had a great conversation in the street with a complete stranger about our podcast or it's just small things. But I, I think that's, that's what we need to get better at paying attention to every single day because we are surrounded by good stuff everywhere we look. Everywhere we look, we're surrounded by incredible stuff, but we're just not paying attention to it. And so this activity in our journal is really designed to get people to stop and just like, fuck, we are so lucky to live in Australia. The stuff that we've got going around us is extraordinary, especially when you consider what's happening around the world right now. And I think to be born in Australia, it's like we've hit the jackpot and we've got to get better at acting. Like, we've got to get better at appreciating that. It's so true that it's sometimes so much easier or way we tend to latch on to the disappointing things or the things that make us angry and we, we love to complain and, like, not appreciate those small things that you were just talking about. That's it. That's exactly right. That's what that activity is designed to do. And, I mean, so much of the journal is around practicing gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness, but a bit of it is also is about practicing vulnerability that we mentioned before, like rather than like telling everyone on a podcast how you're going, it's just like writing stuff down that might feel a bit vulnerable to even put on paper, but it's just like a stepping stone. Where can our listeners get this workbook? Um, so if you go to theresilienceproject.com.au, um, there's a 21-day journal if you want to just sort of dip your toe in the water, um, but there's also a six-month journal if you want to get right into it. And there's a family, a family journal as well if you want to do this with your kids. I'm actually going to have to get my hands on one for Paul and I because I... <laughs> I did say that when I got back from my visa, I'm going to order some because we were both like, if Dusty Martin's yeah. doing this every day, we're doing it every day. Is this the book <laughs> that he stole like eight of? Well, it is. He, was, he was offered them. He was offered them. He didn't steal them from me, but he took more than I had had budgeted on. We, I'd finished. <laughs> I'd, I, know, I'd, I just took enough journals um, to the Richmond Footy Club for, for every player. So I had a journal for each player. I think there was 40 players in the squad. And I said, boys, just take one on the way out. And Dusty walked past and I was so nervous just to be a Richmond because I'm such a massive Dustin Martin fan and also I find him quite scary. But he kind of, he kind of walked past and grabbed, how many? It was like 10 journals. Um, and I was about to say, excuse me, can you please not take 10 journals? That means your friends miss out. Uh, and he turned around and he, he goes, yep, and I went, nothing. Have a nice day, Mr. Martin. And he walked off with his 10 journals. Uh, and, um, that is amazing. He just, I remember, that was great. But then I remember about two years later, he hit me up and again and said, mate, I'll finish the journals. Can you send me some more? So good. <laughs> It's very stereotypical for me to say to get in front of a bunch of big football and men that like mental health is just so not a thing and for you to get in front of these men that actually go mm. away and take away from that and write in these journals and like do you, do you feel proud that you're making a difference out there? Because I think it's amazing. Especially while you're starstruck by yeah. these guys too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so it's a good question. It's kind of changed a little bit for me. Like when I started, my gosh, I was so starstruck by the first one I did was the Melbourne Storm. So it's Billy Slater, Cameron Smith, Cooper Cronk. Admittedly, I didn't grow up in NRL, but I was still very aware of who they were. And I was just so unbelievably nervous. And about five minutes in, Billy Slater put his hand up and I was like, oh God. And I said, yes, Mr. Slater. Uh, <laughs> I said, you can call me Billy. And I went, yes, Billy. And he said, this is fucking awesome. Keep going. And I was like, Fuck, I love it. Whoa. And I remember thinking, gosh, these guys really need this. I, I thought they were going to be so bored. It's like, yeah, I did so much work in elite sport. But then when I realized a lot of these guys were going through all the same stuff that we all go through. It kind of became, there's a human beings who have the same issues we do. We don't think they do because on social media, things look pretty good. Yeah. And they're successful and they're rich and they're famous. So we kind of assume, mm. we stupidly assume that they don't have those issues. But you know, they do. I, I'm very lucky now. I work with the, the only side I do now, just because I, I can't don't have the energy to do too many. The only side I do now is the Queensland State of Origin team. And they are the most incredible group of young men I have ever worked with in my entire life. Um, and Billy's their coach, obviously, which is why I'm there. But they are the most positive, loving, caring, funny, and humble group of young men you could ever meet and they love this stuff. But they need it just as much as everyone else. Yeah, and do you find it kind of like a domino effect when one of them kind of breaks down that barrier and becomes to get a bit more vulnerable? Like the others kind of go, 
oh, that must feel good, and then they get into it too. Yeah, we did a session with, um, and I do have permission to tell this story, and he's told the story as well, so I can, it's not, I'm not speaking out alone here, but when I was at Port Adelaide Footy Club, we just did a session where, I won't go into all the details, but the players had the opportunity to just, just, just to share a story from their life that they sort of wanted to share with the group. They were in a very small room up in Maroochydore on a pre-season camp. I think they'd booked the wrong room. It was tiny. There was like 50 of us crammed into this little room. Uh, the first person to get up and speak was a young guy. Back then, he was one of the younger players, Zach Butters. And he got up and he told the story about his sister's um, addiction issues and was very teary throughout it. And that just set the tone for the rest of the session because everyone's like, well, I'm not going to hold back now. And people were sharing some really beautiful, heartbreaking stuff from their lives. And the effect it had on that group, it was so connecting. And it was all because someone took the, mm-hmm. took the first step. And was vulnerable in front, of the, in front of everyone else. Yeah, totally. I want to encourage everyone to go and buy for Christmas for their, to their loved one, one of your workbooks. Work yeah. I was going to say um, gratefulness books. Uh, call it that. What are your journals? I journals. think that's an epic present. I have something else to ask you, and this is like kind of like going back to when you're talking about letting go, and this is like a personal question for me, but... I am such a perfectionist. Yeah. And it's very difficult because especially in mine and Elodie's relationship, I it's it's actually, I swear it's a disease because it's, a I, it's, it's really, it sometimes it creates like a hindrance. Like, because I'm like, I can't get by my day without this being in line, this being in line. And I'm just like a notes and lists and like everything has to be perfect in my life. How do you let go of this shit? Like, how can you overcome perfectionism. Is that a thing? Yeah, absolutely it is. Yeah, I wrote about it in, in the in the book Let Go because it was a big issue for me was perfection. Like I would do these talks. Gives me anxiety, eh? Well, yeah, it's, a, it's kind of a big part of anxiety, I think, for, for a lot of people. It's like the, we just feel like if we're not perfect at something, we're less lovable or something or we're going to let everyone down and we can't let people down and, and we have this, we're so attached to that. But one of the things that I did was I sort of made a pact to myself that like eight out of 10 is a really good mark. Like out of 10, 80% is a distinction. <laughs> and so when I'm doing talks, I would often, if I hadn't, if I didn't do it perfectly, I'd get really down on myself and go, I can't believe I stuffed that bit up or, but then I kind of was like, well, I can't, if I'm 10 out of 10, every single place I go, every talk I do, I'll have no energy left for my family. I'll have no energy left for the other things in my life. Um, I need to get more comfortable at delivering an eight out of 10. And actually thinking, like, like, Sorry. perfect timing. Sorry. That is Sorry. actually perfect timing for this topic. That I'm is, like, ah. Please don't edit this out. This is so perfect. Keep this in because <laughs> this is, it couldn't be better timing. So I reckon that has triggered you nearly it's jumped out of It's very triggering for me right now. And the fact that she has jumped over the actual roadcaster thing that we've just been having <laughs> cord issues with. I'm like, ah. If there's, know, if there's any way, put... people can see your reaction just then. Like, you look like... <laughs> You look so, I'm, you nearly jumped up out of your seat. I know. I'm, I'm telling like, you now, for anyone listening, this is probably the most interesting part of the podcast. There's a dog barking <laughs> and we're trying to deal with it. The imperfection is And there's is a beautiful. postman at the door. Who is that? Who's at the door? So you had someone knock on the Who's door. It? Yeah, yeah, it was someone at the door. Who was at the door? Who was at the door? Electrician. Oh. Electrician. Amazing. Sorry about that. There you go. I mean, that is... <laughs> Oh, oh, you can oh, get better timing. So, so we've got real wow. life. We have a real life example to practice on here. I'm you want stressed. to do an interview. You want it to go. I understand what it's like to be an interviewer. You want it to be perfect. And someone knocks on your door and a dog barks. I'm so hurts. sorry. No, this is good. I bet she's going to ask to come, come back, back in. in in a second too. You've done something now. Oh, shit. What happened? Okay, just stay there. Don't move. Just It's good now. Don't. Just stay there. Hello. You good? See? Oh, here we go. There we go. We're good. Yes, yes. Yep. Whew, what did I miss? Just don't move that. Okay, well. Sorry, Hugh. This is okay. perfect. This is perfect. We're going to okay. talk me through this. Well, Go. I, like, I could see what happened to you then. It was like, you want this perfect, you want this podcast to be interviewed to be perfect and you've got expectations on how it's going to go. And then the postman, <laughs> like, electrician knocks stressful. on the door and the dog barks and jumps over the cords. And I could see you like nearly jumped out of your skin with like, no, this can't be happening right I'm now. I'm instantly sweating right now. <laughs> but like, but life is life is imperfect. Like, there is there's actually no such thing as perfect. There's no such thing, and we're all trying to be perfect. That is incredibly anxiety producing, uh, invoking. I I think having a mindset of like every morning you wake up, my intention is I'll embrace the imperfections of my day because I believe as a listener, listen for example, if we're talking to this example now. 
as a listener, if I'm listening to a podcast and then I hear someone knock on the door in the background and a dog barking and the host panicking, to me, I'm extremely interested. <laughs> like, and that's all you want to be in a podcast. In Belgium. That's the, this will be the most. Like, yeah. Who's at the door? Because it's not boring. <laughs> it's, it's unpredictable and like uncertain. And that's life. Like life is so unpredictable and so uncertain. And every time you try and make it perfect, I think we're just setting ourselves up to fail. I think if you go into every, oh. you know, I, early on doing podcast interviews, I'd, be, I'd do so much preparation and, and be like, if I didn't quite nail the questions, I'd be so down on myself. But I'm like, that that's not, it's not relatable. Perfection is not relatable to anyone. No one's listening going, polish to me is rubbish. Like I want to hear someone, I want to hear a real life chat. Podcast, the beauty of podcasts, I think is you get to eavesdrop on a really great conversation. A really great conversation isn't perfect from start to finish. There are, there are like pauses, someone gets distracted, someone's phone rings. That's the kind of stuff that happens. And I think we need to get, in this example, just get better at embracing the perfection, imperfections that arise. But even if it's like, we did an episode of this podcast called Curb Your Perfectionism, where our psychologists went through a whole list of strategies and they were great. So people might want to listen to that. No, actually, no, I feel bad. I'm plaguing my own podcast on your podcast. No, go for it. Love um, that. It's called, we'll chuck it in the show notes. Yeah, Curb Your Perfectionism. If anyone's struggling with that, it's, it's an actual psychologist as opposed to some middle-aged bloke talking about all the strategies that can help. <laughs> I'll listen to that one. I'm going to need to listen to that one. And I feel like when you're so... Per- I mean, you're actually doing a really good job of it because you've been very vulnerable lately, but... It- yeah, I think typically it'd be really hard for a perfectionist to actually break down and be vulnerable. I actually so, can't help it. No, but you've been doing really well at that. Thank you. Yeah. It's really and difficult. I just wish I wasn't so... I think my husband's half the problem as well because he's got like such crazy OCD. So he makes shit. me feel like everything also... Like he's actually probably worse you've than You've got me. an OCD person <laughs> and a perfectionist. In one household. Fuck. Yeah. And then you've worked with me, who's like the opposite. <laughs> and I'm just like, man, we'll see what happens today. It'll be sweet. Oh, but, God. God, um, it's been so nice chatting with you. I think I do, there's just so much more. I, I'd like, there's, I've got a hundred notes. Yeah, go. I have two more questions. Yeah. Are your parents happy now? And your sister, sorry, massive one. My sister's been through an incredible journey. And I, I think she is the most resilient person I know to go through all the stuff she's got through in her life. She's a picture of hope and resilience. What a weapon. Yeah, she's extraordinary, the work she's doing now. She lives in LA and she's doing some incredible stuff over there. And mum and dad are grace. You know, mum and dad, you're amazing. I mean, we've been so blessed to have mum and dad. They're still together and they're healthy and happy, touch wood. And yeah, they're great. They're great. Final biggest question of all, are you okay? Yeah. I have... I, I, uh, <laughs> It made it sound like I've done something really wrong. Are you right? Yeah. <laughs> Are you good? Yeah. <laughs> What's going on with you? Um, no, I... Um, so we've got three kids under the age of six. And one of them's going through some developmental stuff, which has been quite tough for all of us. The youngest is a year and a half. And it's been like, we've got some serious issues to sleep in the house. Like on my Garmin the other day, so I said my average sleep for the last month was five hours and two minutes. And so oh, I'm just... Scary. I just feel sick. I feel like... I feel like I'm hungover at Ikea every single day. That's like how I feel. Um, That's hell. Yeah, and so, but I have made so many changes the last year of my life to adapt to this, so many really healthy changes. I never decided to stop drinking. I just kind of have stopped drinking because to me, I never really had a big issue with it. But like, I've got to the point where the, the way I feel the day after outweighs the positives of that day or that night by far. So like, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'd rather, I love drinking Coke Zero. Coke Zero is delicious. I'll have that instead. It's pretty yummy. I did, I stopped drinking from the beginning of September and I feel bloody great. It's awesome, isn't it? It's it's incredible. I just, I I love being able to wake up in the morning and feel good. Yes, totally, totally agree. So. No brain fog. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, So that and then like exercise pretty full on every single day. And then like so much, like I know it's, like frowned upon to talk about it in public. Everyone's like, oh, I've heard enough of it. But like sauna and cold punch to me has been very life-changing and journaling every single day. And just I'm doing so many healthy... I'm eating the best I've ever eaten in my entire life. And I do so much stuff that I feel like the healthier I am, the happier I am. Like despite the fact things can be really difficult at home for Penny and I, uh, as in not with us, but for the two of us as a team, things are really challenging. But the healthier I am, the happier I feel. So yeah, I feel great at the moment. Um, And... I'm not always going to, life is ups and downs. And I think we try and, I think we have this story in our head that like, I'll, I'll get there and I'll feel happy forever and I'm on this up and it's going to be great. But that's not how it works. Something will happen tomorrow or next week or in a month's time that will set me back and 
I'll struggle like anyone else and then I'll work my way back up again. But if you're asking right now, yeah, things are great at the moment. <laughs> oh, we're so happy to hear that. And um, I just a massive congratulations on everything you've accomplished. Like yeah. you're, an, you're an awesome human and like... And, and we know that you're on tour at the moment as well, but I'm just so... I would love to come and see... Where, where are you touring? Like, can, can we get yeah, tickets so we've got, to come and see you? <laughs> uh, we've got shows. We're just about to do our last show of the year at the Opera House in Sydney. But then we've got, next year, we've got uh, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Gold Coast, Gold Newcastle, Coast. Perth, Amazing. Auckland. Um, and it's like, it's a it's a stage show. There's, so there's like, Epic. it would very much surprise people. Why do I say it? Wow. A lot of people said to us, we were shocked. It was not That is not what we were expecting. So... I'm not sure if that was a good thing or a bad thing, but the uh, but the stage show for the Imperfects is um, yes, touring in 2024. Amazing! So we'll leave a link. Can we, can people purchase tickets yes, already they can. or not yes, yet? Yes, can. Yeah. Where can people find you? Can you tell everyone about your podcast and your social media and like if people want to follow you, where are they going to look? I mean, it's hard to remember how to spell my name, so you, I don't want to do that. But if you just Google the result, <laughs> there's just put it in the show notes. Yeah, just if you type my name, and I think. I, I haven't actually checked in a while. I don't know what will come up. But let's go type in the Resilience Project or the Imperfects and that, that'll that probably lead you in the direction of all the stuff you might need. I just started with typing in Hugh Van and everything came up. I didn't even have to deal with the last Oh, there you go. So That's excellent. That was easy. Oh, dear. Thank <laughs> Thanks you so, so much, much That you. was an amazing chat. Yeah. We really appreciate I you really taking liked. the time out of your hectic schedule. Massive congratulations to you guys as well. I think um, the work that you're doing, the stories that you share and the way you share them, I think it's like, we need a lot more of it in society these days and you're, you're very much leading from the front there. So um, congratulations to you guys. Oh, thank, thank you, you so, much. so much. We're actually going to need some live show tips and tricks because we might be doing that next well, year and that sounds so scary. Well, please come and watch us and um, you can maybe... Yeah, um, we will. Yeah, yeah we'll, and we'll chat after us. <laughs> Thanks so much, Hugh. Have a good rest of your day. Thanks, Thanks you. girls. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>